Life Audio. Welcome once again to Truth Tribe with Doug Grotheis, where we seek the truth about the things that matter most through reason and evidence and sometimes have some fun along the way. If you've been listening to this podcast for very long, you know that I'm very interested and concerned about the philosophy of education, particularly pedagogy. So I'd like to read a short essay today called A Critique of Educational Technologies. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Too many educational innovations are, ironically, taking teachers out of their own classrooms. The age-old dynamic of a teacher instructing students in a dedicated setting or often peripatetically, as Jesus and Socrates did, is subtly giving way to diverse delivery systems, such as entirely online courses, hybrid courses, and the glamorous world of the MOOC, massive open-source online classes. The justifications for such innovations are many, but a few criticisms are needed as well. Educational technologies need to be critiqued and used wisely, given their ubiquity and much-vaunted status. But before that, we need to think about the goal of teaching and the nature of knowledge. Students need knowledge, and knowledge needs students, according to Ryder Scruton. The purpose of teaching is to inculcate knowledge that needs to be known. The inherited wisdom of the ages should not be lost through neglect or poor pedagogy, or by students are not inclined or not inspired to learn it. The classic idea of the university is to shape students to have a unified perspective on life, to make them well-rounded and independent thinkers. Educational Technologies The values driving the use of technologies at the expense of personal presence are efficiency, the reduction of learning to information acquisition, economic competition, and catering courses to the supposed particular needs of millennials, roughly those born after 1980. I will address each consideration in turn. New delivery systems are more efficient, many say. This usually means they deliver content, an impersonal and hollowed-out reference to knowledge, to more people more easily. Thus, if a student takes a course online, she can listen to lectures on her own time, or asynchronously. There's no need to show up in a classroom or at a set time along with other students and a teacher. Thus, efficiency, because it makes the most of limited resources, wins the day. Further, consider MOOCs. In this case, star professors 
provide the content that various schools offer for credit through managing the course in their own schools. Through a MOOC, a Michael Sandel, for instance, is available to teach on justice to huge numbers of students. You get more bang for the buck by tapping a well-established teacher to teach countless students through technology. If you kept the author of Justice confined to his own physical classroom, no matter how large, too many would go untaught and thus deprived of his knowledge. Meat space is so small and so constraining compared to the vast vistas of cyberspace. It only makes sense to maximize the -the top-of-the-line professor's influence through MOOCs. While not denying these benefits, something is missing. Namely, someone who teaches students in real time, in real space, dedicated to learning. This is otherwise known as the classroom. Efficiency must be curbed by pedagogical virtue. When you take the teacher out of a classroom and project his image and words across the country or the world, you inevitably lose the personal presence and the interactivity between teacher and student, as well as between student and student. This rich chemistry, or alchemy, is abolished through efficiency, but it also involves some risk. While a Sandell lecture may be superb, the on-site classroom may lack his luster and star power. Yet this is no disaster. The relationship between teacher and students develops over a quarter or semester class. I know from experience that the classroom sometimes sizzles, sometimes simmers, and sometimes stagnates. What matters, though, is the cumulative effect of being there with students, marking their papers, and perhaps spending time with them outside of class during office hours. Consistent pedagogical care is the key to student learning and human flourishing in the academy. There should be a strong pastoral element to teaching. The teacher is shepherding the students in knowledge. Efficiency in reaching the masses with superlative teaching delivered through technology may not be effectual for the deeper teaching and learning of the classroom. What is gained in extending the reach of educational content means a loss in personal presence, interaction, and serendipity. More on that below. As Marshall McLuhan observed, Communication technologies, particularly the electronic ones, extend some elements of humanity while eliminating others. Professor Sandell's image and voice extend far further through a MOOC than he could possibly manage without it. Yet he himself is absent from the classroom in which his virtual self is extended. In other words, a trade-off cannot be escaped. If bare efficiency takes over, the trade-off is immediately worth it. If teaching effectiveness focused on personal presence, continuity, and creativity is the prime value, the trade-off is not worth it, despite the hype and hope for the marvelous MOOC. What drives much of the rush to new delivery systems heavy with technology is a reductionistic approach to knowledge and learning. About three decades ago, when communication technologies were flourishing far beyond prediction, We heard much from the likes of Alvin Toffler and John Naisbitt, no longer household names, of the new information age, which would transform nearly everything for the better. Another utopian false promise. The first premise of this promise was that most problems in education and elsewhere 
were rooted in ignorance of information. Obviously, if the Internet made information more available to more people at greater speeds, this age-old problem could be solved or at least ameliorated. The second premise was that the exchange of information was medium-neutral. Media delivered their content in different modes, the old media in things like newspapers, magazines, and books, the new media in things like television, cell phones, mobile computing devices, all now linked to the Internet, and that this did not much matter to how the information was received. After all, one can travel by bus, by car, by airplane, and arrive at the same destination. It is really a matter of taste. The view described above in those two premises is false if pandemic. Every medium mediates information in a different manner. This is the case even with non-electronic media. Speaking the Lord's Prayer through a megaphone on a public street is a far cry from speaking it gently in a prayer group or in church. The former is forced and rude, the latter is quiet and group-oriented. However, the propositional content, or message, is identical. But the changes in communicative effect become far more dramatic when electricity enters the media. As McLuhan's hyperbolic epigram put it, the medium is the message. The first users of the then-amazing telephone had difficulty adjusting to a voice without a body attached to that voice, or at least within vocal range. It spooked them, just as voices out of nowhere would spook us as well. Through the telephone, the voice was extended, but the personal presence of the speaker was removed, thus eliminating gestures, facial expressions, touching, smell, and more. This subtraction of personality is subversive to full-bodied communication, as anyone who could only speak to a relative through a telephone across the world well knows. But with the living classroom inhabited with present teachers and attending students gathered in one place for a set amount of time, will consider and interact with teaching in a far different manner than those watching a MOOC lecture or any other online medium. Volume is not always intellectually virtuous, that is, reaching more people. In many cases, small is beautiful. But small may not be lucrative to the school, however pedagogically beautiful it may be. A state university, for example, may draw more students and thus more tuition by offering online classes and blended or hybrid courses. In the latter, meeting together in person is blended with online material, such as recorded lectures, threaded discussions, and more. Moreover, paid faculty may be passed in favor of the live stream or recorded expert on any given subject. This usually is justified on the basis of easier access to the course material. This maneuver may increase student enrollment and limit the school's expense for faculty, those pesky humans. As Ecclesiastes says, money is the answer for everything. One cannot pretend that financial pressures will dissipate when an institution authorizes and salutes the virtues of classroom teaching and learning. No such magic wands are at hand for administrators. However, 
if institutions remember their mission of making men and women better educated and thus more ready to meet the world of thought and work, few corners should be cut, because cutting corners may cut off the oxygen of knowledge and skill. Possibly, if schools ponder the effects of technologies that save money, they will consider the quality of education to trump the quantity of income and the number of students to graduate. Historically, the business model has not been the guiding light of learning. Let me say that again. It's pretty countercultural. Historically, the business model has not been the guiding light of learning. It certainly wasn't for Jesus or the Apostle Paul. Some schools may consider risking financial fatigue or failure rather than selling their souls to success wrongly conceived. To take a cue from Jesus in Matthew 6.33, to turn a phrase, Seek first the impartation of knowledge and wisdom, and the rest will follow. The Millennials Endless articles in established educational journals, such as the Chronicle of Higher Education, as well as breezy and impressionist essays written in popular magazines like Newsweek, tell us that these folks have their own worlds, worlds that non-millennials must understand in relationships, education, business, politics, and everything else. The same is true for Generation Z. Given my view of human nature as essentially constant throughout history, which is a biblical view, I am skeptical of generationalism, the notion that particular generations possess unique clusters of characteristics differing widely from previous generations and that we can mark this off chronologically. The social critic Os Guinness referred to this as the secular equivalent of astrology, although it may be a bit more successful in its predictions. Age is only one variable for organizing people according to general tendencies. Race, levels of intelligence, and demographics matter as well. Nonetheless, millennials are taken, rightly or wrongly, to be quite different from previous generations, such as Generation X or Baby Boomers, the moniker that perhaps got this whole sad business started. In any event, millennials are thought to be addicted to cyberspace media. They cannot live without it, to have short attention spans, to lack the ethic of hard work, to care little about deadlines, to be self-centered, to be flippantly relativistic, and to have little ability to read for comprehension and retention. By the way, why else should you read? Therefore, given these traits, teaching and assessment must be radically changed, lest schools be left behind because of a failure to change with the times. In light of this, teaching must use plenty of technology, since they are used to it, avoid lecturing like shingles, and use assignments customized to their tastes. This means to avoid assigning persuasive essays or deep research that require logical analysis, deep reflection, and the mastery of prose. Further, since millennials are very present-oriented, there is no need to delve into the past to trace the history of philosophy, economics, politics, or much else. These young people need material they can directly apply to careers and their personal interests. Even if there are general traits for millennials or Gen Zers, this should not determine the approach to teaching them. Learning requires focused attention. If they are easily diverted because of their constant multitasking, then they should change. We do not expect that airplane pilots or brain surgeons will be 
distracted while performing their duties, no matter what generation they belong to. They must attend earnestly and focus faithfully on their tasks. As Blaise Pascal said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. If so, then how many educational problems stem from millennials, or anyone else, not being able to sit quietly in the classroom? Students, quay students, need a moral compass themselves. They ought to respect their teacher. This, of course, goes against the thoughtless egalitarianism of popular culture. Students, nevertheless, of whatever generation, should read the syllabus without multitasking, develop their reading, not scanning, skills, and learn to write at least passable prose with proper documentation. Is that really so much to ask? If we have done our exegesis of educational technologies, we can find a wiser voice for teaching. Every teacher needs to find a voice distinctively his or her own. Knowledge and skills are imparted through the prism of personality and, more importantly, through moral character. Teachers should play to their strengths as well as owning their weaknesses. Live performances, such as teaching, or of any kind, are rarely perfect. But just as a good jazz musician recovers from a missed note and a ballet dancer keeps dancing after a misstep, teachers should keep jamming and dancing. It's been Doug Grothuis with Truth Tribe. If you'd like to know more about me or how I might help you, please go to my webpage, douglasgrothuis.com, and please tell your friends about this podcast. Truth Tribe is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. No matter what you're going through, you are not alone. Sis, if you've experienced pain in your father-daughter relationship, I want you to know that you are loved and seen. I'm Kia Stevens, host of the Hope for Women with Father Wounds podcast, and I created my show to help you exchange your father wounds for the love of God the Father. Join me for encouragement, wisdom, and scripture. Just search Hope for Women with Father Wounds on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcast.